you have called us to something more, something greater, something more powerful, and yet we are content with with so much less. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. We ask you to speak very deeply to our hearts and to our minds to challenge us to see what life with you can actually look like. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting a new series. For those of you who are visiting with us, we want to say welcome. Um, the series is called Top Gear. Now, how many people have heard of Top Gear, first of all? Does anybody ever hear? Okay, so that, that's good. Actually, I was wondering when I first chose this series, I was wondering how many people actually uh, knew about it. And you're probably wondering, what does watching a very orange car with a guy with a very thick British accent have anything to do with church? We'll, we'll get to that in a second. This morning, we're going to call it uh, uh, How's Your Engine? So let me tell you a little bit about Top Gear. Top Gear is a BBC show, and it is, the motoring show is the most widely watched factual television program in the world, according to Guinness's Book of World Records. Top Gear plays in 214 territories or countries worldwide and has an estimated global audience of 350 million people. So just so you know, that is like three times the size of the Super Bowl. That is, that is greater than almost any sports event that happens in America. Not, maybe not globally with, uh, with FIFA and all that, but it is a, a, a huge show. Now, the reason I chose this as a theme is because those of you who own a car, drive a car, you know that you fear something about your car, and you fear that noise. That, 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 that noise when you turn the car on, is like, uh-oh, what's that, right? Now, you need to understand, I drive a very high-performance vehicle. It's a 1995 Honda Civic. And so I know, when it comes to cars, I know what I'm talking about. So just be clear on that, right? But the thing is that will drive you crazy about your car is that knocking or that grinding or that squeaking or something about it, right? We are so addicted to our car. We live in a car culture so that what happens is when our cars go awry, you're like, okay, all we see is dollar signs, right? Like, for example, my car, um, I was told it needed rear brakes, and so I took it to a place, and uh, I said, okay, so give me a quote on what it would cost to change the rear brakes. And the guy came back and said, it's about $400 to change your rear brakes and all the other kit and caboodle, and I don't pretend to know anything of it. So I'm like, okay. But I called a friend of mine in Belleville, my friend Randy. My friend Randy is, he's very frugal. And he knows the deals. You want to know where the best deal is for anything? I'll give you his number. And because uh, he will tell you where the best deal is. So I told him I need to get my car fixed. He's like, hey, I've got a guy up here who, in the country. And he has a garage and, you know, he does car repairs. And I'm like, sounds sketchy, but if it's cheaper, I'm okay with that. Because apparently I have no problem risking my life for saving some money. And so I drove two and a half hours. And really I wanted to kind of hang out with him. And we had sushi for lunch and all that. So it was kind of a win-win. And at the end of it, I said to the guy, okay, so how much do I owe you? And the guy said, well, I, uh, you know, we, we changed the drums, and, mm-hmm, and uh, it'll be $160. And of course, I'm like, wow, this is the best day ever. It's like, it's like discovering a unicorn, right? Finding a, a, a mechanic that's going to give it cheaper than anybody else and be honest about it. It's, it's, you might as well have a picture of Bigfoot or, or Bigfoot himself stuffed in your living room because that's how extraordinary it is, right? Our cars can drive us crazy. And then, of course, trying to find the money to repair our cars can also drive us crazy as well, too. And those of you, some of you are shaking your heads as they did in the first service because we are a car culture. 
right? And especially in Canada, right? Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to meet a guy in a parking lot to buy some winter tires. I found off Kijiji, so I may never be heard from again. But that's what we will do to save money for uh, our cars, because that's, uh, that's how dependent we are upon our cars. So the reason I chose this series, because back in August, you know, my wife's car was having issues back then, so we had to get uh, it repaired. But one thing I realized, what if your spiritual life is like your car engine? Right? What if I said to you that your spiritual life is like your car engine, and then the next question is, how's it running? Right? How's it running? Like, in that clip there from, uh, from that Top Gear, right, he's driving this bright orange Zenvo, right? It's like, I've never heard of this car, but it is, it is a supercar, right? It is fast, like, you know, over 300 kilometers per hour is, is fast, right? It's dangerous and it's fast, right? But what if I said to you, that when we read the Bible, when we read through scriptures, what we see is a supercar of faith. And yet we are all content with driving 1995 Honda Civics. Well, maybe not, you're not, but maybe I'm not, but that's my choice, right? Well, maybe are, we, are, we are puddling along in these little cars when God really has something different for us. And so what I wanted to do is I want to kind of take a look at, at that part of our lives and, 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 and have a series, kind of look at that. Um, there's a great uh, uh, passage of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 12. Now, Jeremiah the prophet, I would kind of call him the complaining prophet because Jeremiah most often looks at God and says, why? Why this? Why that? Why? What's going on, right? But God actually responds. Imagine if God responded to our questions. We may not like it as much as we think we would, right? But God responds, right? And so in this particular uh, instance, Jeremiah is calling up to God and saying, have you forgotten about us? What is going on here? Why do our enemies surround us, right? Jeremiah's book was written in the Babylonian exile, right? So he has, he has absolute reason to say, God, have you forgotten about us, right? But in this particular instance, God responds. In Jeremiah chapter 12, look what God says. If racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan? So Jeremiah says to God, God, where are you? What's going on, right? And the God's response is, if you get tired running against mere mortals, how are you going to keep up with me? Right? Like how, if you stumble and fall upon open ground, completely open ground, when things get dicey in the obstacle courses of life, how are you going to keep up? And that's kind of what I think God's saying to us today. Right? If you can't even just be, a, uh, even just kind of understand the, what God has for us, in this beautiful country that we live in, election or not, you know, it is, it, we live in, so, we have so much freedom, we have so much around us, and yet we struggle, right? And then we see our brothers and sisters across the pond there, you know, in, in, in the Middle East and in different parts of the world who have to struggle for their faith and, and have to endure such harsh circumstances, even their own lives being taken. And we, on, on open ground, are stumbling. And God says to us, if racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? Because what God is implying is, I've designed you to race against horses. And you can't even keep up with them. You can't even keep up with human beings, right? And so that's kind of what we want to look at with this series, right? In order to understand this series, we have to reframe um, Christianity, period. And I, and I said last week, when I was kind of teasing this series, I said that this series, I hope for many of you, will reframe your faith. Now, one of the things you need to understand something is that when we use the word Christian, and I've said this to you before, is that that word is packed with a whole bunch of baggage, right? 
The funny thing is the Bible actually doesn't use the word Christian to talk about those who have decided to follow Jesus. They use a different word. The word is disciple. The word disciple appears 269 times in the Bible. Christian appears three times. Right? So Christian's actually kind of a label, kind of a kind of a title. But when Jesus talks about this thing, this faith that we're on, he uses the word disciple. So what I want to do is I want to contrast uh, convert or, or Christian with a disciple. I'm going to show you how the Bible defines what we're supposed to be and what we've kind of defaulted towards. So when we talk about a, a convert or a Christian, right, what we look at is somebody who has made a mental ascent. It is, a, it is an abstract idea. Yes, I think very spiritual thoughts, and I share, uh, I share pictures of, of scriptures with rainbows on, on the internet, and I like uh, articles that are about faith, right? Like that's, it's, it's kind of a mental thing, right? A, a, a Christian or a convert is somebody who is comfortable, right? They're, they're, they're comfortable. I got a good life. It's, it, it's comfortable, right? They have very minimum effort. Like, you know, I go to church, you know, Sunday, as long as it's not bad weather or good weather. If it's medium weather, I'm good. But if it's bad weather, good weather, I may not show up, right? Uh, stagnation. Here's the thing that's very interesting, right? When you talk to somebody, if they are talking about the past, if they're talking about what God did to them bef- uh, in their lives beforehand, you have uh, a great uh, glimpse into, into this idea of stagnation. Like, for example, people will say to me, oh, I remember when I was a youth, I went to youth camp and God spoke to me, or a young adult, and I discovered God when I was in university. I remember that. But the implication is not now, Right? A convert is somebody who's always looking to the past, what God has done in the past. And finally, a convert is somebody who's an individual, right? They are all about themselves. They're all about what they want to do, right? But when we look at the idea of disciple, we, and we kind of say, how does the Bible describe what a disciple looks like? It, it frames it a little differently. Like, for example, we use the word spiritual journey, but the interesting thing about that is that it is a long journey, okay? It is meant to be a long journey. And if you really want to look at it properly, it's a journey that lasts your entire life, right? A disciple is not someone who lives sacrificially, right? When you look at, at the book of Acts, when you look at the Gospels, those who, who, who rallied around Jesus and call themselves disciples of Christ, they lived in a way that was not about grabbing more. It was about letting go of more, Right? It was a lifestyle transformation. It wasn't just simply, yes, I, I, I will go to this, but their entire lives were transformed with encountering who and what Jesus was. And a disciple is always about the future. When you talk to a man or a woman who is passionate about God, they're always believing for what God is going to do. There's a person I've been praying for that would know Jesus. There's, there's, there's something I'm, I'm believing for. A disciple is somebody that is looking for what God is going to accomplish. They are looking ahead, not behind them. Right? And finally, another, uh, the last thing about a disciple is they seek community. See, what you need to understand is this thing called church, how we've described it, it is really meant to be a spiritual gathering of community. And disciples seek that out. I have never, and please hear me, I've been going to church for my 43 plus years of life. I've been a pastor for 20 plus years. And I have yet to meet somebody who is spirit-filled who's all on their own. Yes, I love God and I'm okay with loving God in my house by myself. No, I've yet to meet that person. They don't exist. Why? Because when the Spirit gets a hold of us, it, it, it forces us to seek out other people. And in that community is encouragement, is growth, is, 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 that, is that iron sharpening iron. So when we talk about this idea of a convert and, and a disciple, you see the difference. And he pauses for a dramatic effect. And so when we talk about the demise of the North American church, we talk about people leaving the church today. It's the converts that are leaving. 
Not the disciples. Disciples never leave the church. They never leave their faith. Right? And so what we are seeing is a, is, is a revealing of really what we're talking about here. Right? And it's just like, okay, this is how the Bible describes it, but this is actually how it's being lived out. There's a guy named Dallas Willard, and you'll be hearing his name a lot because he's written extensively about disciples. He kind of gives us a definition of a disciple. He says this, A disciple is one who, intent upon becoming Christ-like and so dwelling in his faith and practices, systematically and progressively rearranges their affairs to that end. And let me kind of unpack that there, right? So what he is saying is that, that, that a disciple is somebody in faith, what they believe, and how they act, right, is a systematic and progressive, so that there is a change, a transformation that is happening over a period of time. And I've put on the bottom there, a disciple has right belief and right action in balance. And let me ex- explain that. On one hand of the spectrum, you can talk about belief, right? On the other end of the spectrum, you can talk about action, right? And so when you think about the church, it's kind of gotten the pendulum between both, right? So on the one hand, it's been right belief. Believe the right things, and, 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 and we're going to have a prayer meeting, we're going to have a great worship service, right? That's belief, but there's no action, so it's incomplete. But on the other side, you have right action. We're out there feeding the poor, we're out there doing this, and those are fine. Please hear me very clearly. That's important but if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you don't have the right belief there, that actually is a problem as well too. And so what needs to happen is the truth is actually in between. I was uh, at a party yesterday. I was having a great conversation with this couple. And, uh, of course, you know, they find out I'm a pastor and we, the, the conversations ensue from there, right? And I said to them, and he was kind of talking a little bit about some of the uh, ways of looking at the church. And I said to him, what you need to understand about, about theology, about church, about all these type of things, is there's always been this fluctuation back between extremes. But the thing is, though, is the truth actually lies in between, right? So we say, oh, it's this, I'm this, I'm that. I'm like, mm. you know, right, our politics right now, extremes. The truth is actually in between. I was actually having a conversation with somebody about politics, and I won't bore you about it, but all I said is that I'd like to create a political party that actually rips off all three political parties. Because the fact is, there isn't a political party that represents God or Jesus or anything like that. Right? Let's just get that out of the way. But some parties have actually great ideas. Like, oh, I like that or that one. I like that or that one. And like that or that one. I just need to create one that combines all three and just blatantly rips all three of them off. And just that's what we are. We are, we are the rip-off party. We, are, we will vote for this one and we'll vote for that one and we'll vote for that one and we'll totally not vote for that. Right? Because what happens is we become, become so polarized, we think, oh, we must be right. But the truth is somewhere in between, right? And when we talk about our Christianity, we talk about our, being a disciple of God, we need to understand that we can have our, our, our ways of doing things, but the truth is in between. And so Dallas Willard rightfully says that belief and action must live in balance with each other in order for you to be a disciple of Christ. Because then he goes on and he describes what a non-disciple looks like. And this is what he says. In contrast... The non-disciple has something more important to do or undertake. Such lame excuses only reveal that something on their dreary list of security, reputation, wealth, power, sensual indulgence, or mere distraction and numbness still retains his or her ultimate allegiance. So Dallas Willard says a disciple is somebody who is systematically and progressively becoming Christ-like. But a non-disciple is distracted, is always chasing everything. Right? And again, when we apply this to present day, we can see this. We can see why the church seems so weak, so powerless, so 
I would use the word dispassionate, right? Someone said to me a couple weeks ago, when you preach, you're really passionate. I'm like, how do you not get passionate about God, right? Like, we can get passionate about sports teams. Why does God get half of that or a quarter of that or even, you know, less than that? Why are we so passionate about multi-million dollar athletes getting paid to hit, throw a ball or, or whatever? And, I, and I, I love basketball, so please don't understand. I'm not pointing at you. I have my sport too. But it's like, how do we get so passionate about that but not passionate about God? Uh, okay, anyways, that's another story. Remember we looked at this guy named Jim Collins, right? Jim Collins wrote the book Good to Great. And he had this quote that we talked about. Greatness is not a function of circumstance. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of, matter of conscious choice and discipline, right? Oh, wait, did I hop ahead there? I'm sorry. I, like I said, I get excited. Um, okay, we got that one there. All right, now let's go to this next one. Okay, so Jim Collins says, Greatness is not a function of circumstance. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. Did I do that again? I'm so sorry. That wasn't me, just to be clear. That wasn't me. But... Let me just say this right now. Discipleship is not a function of circumstance. Discipleship, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. You ever met a man or woman of God that are just passionate and you say to yourself, oh, what's your secret? How do you do it? Right? How do you do it? And the fact is, there is no secret. I always love those books, Secret of Weight Loss. It's no secret. Eat a balanced meal and work out. Not much of a secret, really. You know, it's, it's not a secret, right? But to being a passionate follower of Jesus, there is no secret. There, please hear me. There is no secret in, in becoming Christ-like. There isn't. If there was, it wouldn't be very, it wouldn't be a way that God would want to kind of talk about growth and all that, right? There is no secret. So as we go through the series, as you see up there, we're going to go through a couple of premises, okay? And I want to unpack those premises for you this morning because this series is all going to be about tuning our spiritual engine. The first thing is, of course, if you already heard me say, God wants disciples, not converts. Now, let me show you something here. In Matthew 28, this is an important chapter, right? This is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. This is the last time they will physically see Jesus. Only one other person We'll see Jesus, well, actually two other people, Paul, uh, otherwise known as Saul, on the, uh, on the road, right? But also John, uh, who wrote a Revelations, Jesus will appear to him as well, too. But for the rest of his followers, the last time they see him. And so this teaching is important. Look what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make, not converts, not Christians, not big buildings with people in them, but disciples of all the nations, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, because this is what he says a disciple is, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, look at the word here, teaching them. It is a word of constant uh, process. What is a disciple? A disciple, according to Jesus, is somebody who is taught every day to be like Jesus. So the first thing you need to understand is God is looking for disciples, not converts, right? Just because you said yes to Jesus when you were a youth or a child or a teenager or yesterday, that yes at that moment must be a yes every day. That's transformation, right? That's how we become like Jesus. It's not just yes back at camp or retreat or, or this or that, but yes today, yes tomorrow, yes the next day. That is what it looks like. So God is looking for uh, disciples, not converts. The second thing is we have mistaken salvation for sanctification. Now, let me kind of explain what I mean by this. 
The word sanctification derives from the Latin noun sanctifico. This original Latin word means to separate and set aside. Its root word is holy, right? We say something is holy, we say it is set aside for God, right? So sanctification is the same way as well too, but it goes a little bit further. Sanctification in this sense is to be set apart from the world, to be different, be a different people. Okay, we got that, but it goes deeper. However, this original Latin word was actually translated from the Greek. It's not actually the source of the word. The original Greek word often translated into English or it as wash or cleanse. So what's he saying here? That when we talk about salvation, I can say to you, when were you saved? And we use that phraseology, we use that language, when were you saved? And I'm like, well, when I was 17, when I was 5, when I was 6, yesterday, 5 minutes ago. We, we, it's like a crisis moment. We say, this is the moment that I said I would, fall, I would become a disciple of Jesus or a Christian, right? But the word sanctification means that every day from that moment on, you are being washed or cleansed. You are being transformed. You are being, remember we looked last week at, um, sorry, two weeks ago at John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And the Father is prunes, right? And I said to you that those of us who are connected to Jesus, every day we are being pruned. And pruning is difficult, it's painful, right? But what, what is God doing? He's cutting away the things that distract us from who he is, right? And so when we talk about salvation, yes, you've experienced this, this, this transformation of what it meant to be a Christ follower. Excellent. But now what about today, Right? washing and cleansing. Uh, you know, a couple weeks, oh, last weekend was uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, we had Thanksgiving at our house, and uh, we had about 35 people, half of which I didn't know who they were. I think they just smelled the turkey, and they came inside and started eating food. But after Thanksgiving meal is over, you know this, there's a pile of dishes, right? And so if you want to understand it this way, those dishes are your lives, and what's going to have to happen is cl- cleaning, right? Everything has to be cleaned. And wouldn't you love to go, Okay, Ren, we're gonna, we're gonna, everything's clean now, right? And it's like everything's going to fit in the dishwasher. Not so much. It takes people to help out and to clean up, and that's what happens. Your life is the same way. There has to be a washing or a cleaning that happens every day for the rest of your life. I've been a Christ follower. I've been a disciple of Jesus for, well, depending on which, which one you think stuck as far as me giving my heart to the Lord. I would say over 30-plus years, 35 years easily, right? But I'm still... God is still revealing in my own life the areas that I need to work on. I'm still astounded by how much I still need to grow. I am, right? But that's the cleansing that happens on a daily basis, right? And the final premise is this. At the root of the word disciple is discipline, right? Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize, Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I will have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, look what he's saying here. Now, here's what we know about Paul. Paul was trained by a teacher, a famous teacher of the day. His name was Gamaliel. And, and Gamaliel taught Paul to have like a lawyer's mind. That's why Paul writes the way he does. But the other thing we know about Paul is we think he was a bit of a sports fan because he uses this language of the Olympics all over the place in his writing, right? And in this particular one as well too, Paul is using the same language as well too. But now look what he says. And I want to highlight something for you. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. 
See, a Christian is slave to their desires. All we try to do in our life is we try to take our desires and we try to, we, we, we try to go, oh, how, which, which is right? How, how do I live this life out, right? We are slave to our desires and we have lots of desires. Some good, some not so good. What, what is Paul saying? Paul says, I am training to make my desires subservient to Jesus. I want to make my body not prone to going after these desires, but I want to train them so that I can learn, I can train myself to not let my desires destroy my life. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, right? Being a disciple means that every day you are trying to make your body, right, your slave and not the other way around. Not to indulge in the things that we know will hurt or harm us, right? So Paul says being a disciple of Jesus means to have a discipline that, that comes with that. So I'm going to wrap up here. I just want to give you a statement, right? The good news of Christianity isn't instant growth or instant achievement or instant failure. We have, as, as, as pastors, as, as Christians today, as leaders within the church, we have kind of preached that instant faith. Oh, just come and you'll just, just instantly it'll happen. Let me just be clear with something here. It will take your entire life and then even beyond that to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is. There is, there is no shortcut. We have talked about shortcuts. We've preached shortcuts. we created buildings of shortcuts. And the Bible's like, there is no shortcut. But the good news is, as well, too, is there's no instant failure as well, too. Your failure is not what defines what God wants to do in you. So, yes, you, you, your successes and your failures, they go kind of hand in hand. And I use the word success in, 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 the, in the kind of the biblical sense, right? Instead, we train ourselves over a long period of time to achieve what God has called us to, right? That's the, that's the secret. When I talk to people who are Christ followers, who are disciples of Jesus, who are 60, 70, 80 years, who, have, who, who I believe have accomplished a lot, I say to them, what's your secret? And most often they'll say something like this, I didn't give up. That doesn't sound like a great secret, but that's it. It was, it's it's, 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 it's constant every day, even when they fall, when they fail, they didn't give up. Now, I said last week, we're going to do something new at this time in this service, and I said to you that what I wanted to do is I want to give an opportunity for you to ask questions. Now, let me just kind of say something here about this part, is that um, it is going to be a, uh, a dialogue for this, but it's questions about what I'm teaching. If you have questions about the rapture or hell, we can have that conversation later. Um, but this is more of a time for you to ask questions, because I realize as I'm teaching that some people are going, Wah. And in the first service, we had two questions. That was great. And I know that this is kind of new for us, and you're all so timid, so shy, so some of you may not ask any questions. Um, in the future, we'll have, like, you, you, you can text your question as well, too. But I want to kind of go from a monologue to a dialogue. And, that's, and the first time doing this, first couple of times, I realized people were like, well, I'm not going to ask anything, right? That's okay. But does anybody have any questions about anything I said thus far? Can I, if I can answer any questions. And again... No pressure. Uh, going twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Well, not good. I want you to ask questions, but um, uh, make sure we have audio for this one. Um, here's the statement I want you to take, and this is actually where I really want you to, to live with. Christianity is, is easy in the way the world kind of puts it. Being a disciple of God, being a disciple of Jesus is difficult. It's hard, right? 
I have my entire life lived with guilt and shame about not achieving what God wants for me. Um, I've always failed. Uh, I've always like tried and tried to achieve and it's like not quite right. My failure is what defined me. My failure is what kind of, and, and, and that failure, that falling is guilt and shame and, and that, that lingers with us. And I realized something as I was, as I was researching and reading on, uh, on monks, literally individuals, men and women who lived in caves to seek after God, live, w- walking through uh, people who've taught on this type of stuff. And I came up with a statement, and I want to give it to you today, because this is a statement I really want you to take with you from here. And this is the statement as this. Don't try, train. I want you to know something. Don't try to be a good person. You'll fail. Don't try to be like Jesus. You'll fail. Don't try to overcome that sin that you always fail at. Why? You'll fail, right? When you try, failure is almost a given, right? But when you train, suddenly something happens, right? So, um... If you were like a boxer, for example, and you were training, right? You walk into the gym, I want to be a boxer. What happens? They start teaching you things. Okay, there's the gloves and your footwork, and here's what you need to do, and this is how you need to punch, right? But when you go to your first match, there is no assumption you will win because you don't know that much. But you don't walk away from your first match, your first defeat, going, oh, that's it, I'm not a boxer. What happens is you sit down with your trainer, and they say, okay, here's what you did wrong. Footwork, way wrong, right? You dropped your guard, right? And they walk through it. And like, okay, you got that? Okay, now we're going to train harder for your next match. When you try, you fail, and what happens is all you feel is shame and guilt. Right? All you feel is shame and guilt. And so what happens is, is the enemy is said to you, try harder. Try harder. You're like, ah, right? You're trying harder, right? There's a sin in your life. There's something in your life that, that trips you up every time. What do you do? Oh, I'm going to try harder this week. I'm going to try today to overcome it. And when you fail, you're like, why would God do that? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense, right? The Bible doesn't talk about trying. It talks about training. It is a long obedience to God. I actually have a video clip I want to show you right now. It's by a very famous theologian. It's only 10 seconds long. And I just want to show it to you. I want to really hear what he says. Because this is exactly what I just said, but, you know, as, as this theologian would say it. with you what cannot be done hear you nothing that I say you must unlearn what you have learned alright I'll give it a try no try not do or do not there is no try so as Yoda is telling us is for this series, I want you to understand something. I need you to hear me very clearly on this. I'm absolutely serious about this. You have to unlearn what you have learned. And you have to unlearn this trying part of your Christianity because it is not working for you. You've got to unlearn the trying part. Yeah, I'm going to try, God. I'm going to try to pray more. I'm going to try to do this, this more. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Fail, fall flat on your face. I want you to transform. So this week, when you go out and you fall and you fail... Here's what I want you to whisper to yourself. Train, not try. Train, not try. Because it's reminding you to always push forward, to know that this is not going to define you. Why do we want to train and not try? Because when we try and we fail, the accuser, the enemy is like, oh, see, you can't do this. Who are you kidding? You can't get a hold of this. You can't do this. And of course, we're like, yeah, you're right, okay. So you walk off and we take steps back in our faith. 
But if we think about how the Bible looks at it, right? Look at Peter, for example. Peter is a mess, right? This guy is, is an individual who always seems to kind of either say the right thing or the absolute wrong thing. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, right, Peter goes. And what happens? He denies Jesus three times. He, this, is, this is the ultimate betrayal of his best friend, of his savior, right? Now, remember, a couple of chapters later comes the upper room, right? Acts chapter 2. And Peter is there. Now, could you imagine Peter walking the door and people are like, whoa, 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 Peter, 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 buddy, you, don't, you, you shouldn't be here. You, you tried, you failed. Listen, Peter, here's what we want you to do. Here's this great book on, 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 on quotes by people. We want you to go away for a year and come back, and maybe then we can see if we can fit you into this new, this, this Jesus thing. But right now, Peter, you failed, and we don't think you're really right for this, right? Peter, right, he failed, but he was in training. He wasn't trying, right? He, it, like, like, why do we think to ourselves, we fall and we fail, we, we keep getting messed up, tripping up on this particular thing in our life or things in our life because we understand Christianity wrong. When you say to me, how can God forgive me? How can God love me? You're being a Christian, not a disciple. You're trying and you're not training. That's what you need to, that's the transformation that I've had in my own mind in this. Uh, I realized something, that I am trying to be a good pastor. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good father. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, right? And I fail. I'm starting to train now. I'm trying to say, okay, Lord, what is it that I need to do? How, what, what parts of my life are I missing? So for the next eight weeks, we are going to be looking at spiritual disciplines. We're going to be talking about what it is that we need to do for Christ-likeness. And did you know that there is things that you need to do for Christ-likeness? And I want to guarantee you something right now. If you implement these things in your life, I promise you at the end of it, you will be more Christ-like. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That is an audacious claim. You're right, it is. But if you put the effort forward and you discipline yourself for that, that's the beginning of Christ-likeness. Let me close with a scripture from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Because this is what Paul is telling us is supposed to happen. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's Paul saying here? Being transformed. You fall, you fail, you've tried. Paul says, listen, you're being transformed. Tomorrow you will be transformed if you allow God to. And when we look at spiritual disciplines, this word, this is an ancient practice that the early church understood all rooted in the life of Jesus. We use the word Christ-like a lot. But we don't behave like Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at these practices, these very ancient practices, and we're going to start implementing them in our lives. And I'm going to teach you each week on an aspect of it. And eight weeks later, by the end of it, you'll have seven that you will be able to kind of, I, I really believe that if you do these things, and I really mean do these things, create space for them, you will see your life transform. And we as a church are going to help you. I'm going to give you... Um, um, like journals and things like that to help you to pray through this and all that. This is going to be a very challenging series, but I promise you, if you do this, if you discipline yourself for this, you will see results, not because this is a quick fix, but this is a result because 
these things that you're going to be learning are rooted in the nature and the character of who Christ is. You really want to be Christ-like, you've got to start behaving like him. You've got to start behaving like him, you start seeing things differently, and God begins to get a hold of your life. And that's what the series is about. Your spiritual engines may be sputtering, you turn the key, and nothing's happening. Right? What we want to do is we want to re-take apart the engine and put it back together properly. We want to start training for godliness and stop trying to be a good person. And when we do that, we'll understand how God intended for us. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we do this every week. And again, I do this to help you meditate, which is one of the spiritual disciplines we'll be looking at in the future. But we want to meditate on what God's been speaking to us. I know that there are people here that have been trying so hard. I want you to know that your trying is okay, but I want you to train now. I want you to train for godliness, train to be Christ-like. When you fail and you fall and you will, that does not define you. We train for Christ-likeness. We train ourselves. We start implementing things in our lives that Jesus did. And when we do that, we see ourselves transforming. There is no secret. And even though we're going to look at these things over the next eight weeks, it's going to take the rest of your life to fully understand how these things are going to change us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you lived exactly as you called us to live. And so that when we read your life in the Gospels, we see exactly how we are meant to live. God, I pray right now that each person here would realize something, that they would start training to be like you and stop trying. Lord, forgive us when we fall and when we fail. God, forgive us that we have so missed the point of what you've called us to. Lord, make us disciples. Make us individuals who are pursuing after you. And that pursuit does not mean that we go live in a cave somewhere, but that pursuit means that we do give you more time in our lives, that we are more conscious, more aware of your presence. And Lord, that we invite you into our lives in a, in a greater and a greater way. Lord, we, we don't understand sometimes why things happen. But Lord, I thank you that you do not look at us and see us as our failures, but instead you see us as what could be. Spirit of the Most High God, I pray you'd speak to us, and you'd challenge us, and you'd convict us, Lord. God, I pray that we, each of us today, would commit ourselves to training to be like Jesus, and we'd stop trying. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.